0: Good Monday morning, and welcome to another episode of the podcast, Insanity, A Peace of Mind. I am your host, Stephanie. I am recording episode 155, and I am going to take a break from dialectical behavior therapy, which we are addressing almost exclusively as a skills series. And I have some guests. I have Lindsay, my daughter. I have Christian, my son, and his wife, Annie. And we have the dog, John Ray. I didn't get John Ray's permission to say his name, so I hope it's okay. So we're all in a room sitting around a table so I'm at home, but if it sounds different, it's because I'm not recording in my normal place. This podcast is about, in a nutshell, spirituality and mental health, and I'm just going to let it go where it goes. So we have talked about this topic amongst ourselves for several months now, and I'm not sure where this podcast will go, but I'm going to start by asking the question and any one of these fine people can answer, how do you view the difference between spirituality and religion? And try saying spirituality several times in a row. Um, is that you asking? That is me asking. Okay. It is now an open forum. <laughs> I can go. This is Lindsay.
1: Um, just basically the first thing that comes to my head is uh religion implies to me an organized organization or a building or a meeting place or a spirituality maybe just a bit more personal um yeah i mean i'll just start there and people can riff
0: fair enough i
2: agree this is annie um i spirituality to me feels much more personal and I don't think that either religion and I don't think religion and spirituality are mutually exclusive um, but you can have one without the other so if you are part of an organized religion you can cultivate your own spirituality um, but and you also don't have to be part of a religion to have spirituality in your life and i also think that there are plenty of people within organized religions who are just following religion and don't really have their own sense of spirituality
0: i would agree with both of you thus far Mm
3: -hmm. yeah i mean i I don't have too much to add to that i'd say religion typically is like dictating what a spiritual practice should and could look like where spirituality is very individual and very open-ended and, and maybe we'll get into this as we keep going, but I I think that religion actually in a lot of ways kind of stifles or suffocates spirituality in people because it is handed down and kind of a, more of a a rigid structure for people to follow.
0: Yeah. My addition would be mostly that I just agree with what they said, and I have found a lot of spirituality outside of the religious tradition, and mine is Latter-day Saint, the Mormons, and I'll I'll speak for Lindsay and Christian because they grew up in my house, and you want to Disclose or not disclose? I
2: also uh, grew up in in an LDS household. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I have some questions, and you can do whatever you want with the questions, and they're not in any particular order. And I'm not going to worry about that either. Mostly what I want to explore is this what I believe as an intersection between spirituality and mental health. I found when I went back to school and started reading and getting involved in this stuff that I found a lot of what I'm going to refer to as godly principles in mental health theories. I see godly principles in cognitive behavioral therapy. I see mental health principles in resources given in marriage and family therapies for parents to learn how to listen to their children. And it just goes on and on and on. And I don't know if I was surprised by that, but I certainly noticed it. So I'm gonna ask a question because three of us are actually therapists. Lindsay, Christian, and myself, how has your view of spirituality shifted or changed as a result of your job? And I'm gonna, as a caveat, Annie. I know that you're doing a lot of work in other areas and things that you really are passionate about. And feel free to share anything you want, even if the question is directed to a therapist. <laughs> Please help us understand.
1: Um, not uh, well, I think I need a minute to think, actually, for a second, just to articulate thoughts. So, well, okay.
3: Yeah, I would echo what you said. I the more I work as a therapist, the more I see that in the extreme, and and you know a lot of people don't want to hear this, and I and I'm not this rigid about it, but I kind of regard mental therapy, mental health therapy in general as a spiritual process, and mental health issues as a spiritual call. Um, like if you go back and you study like Jung, C.G. Jung, you know, we regard him as a psychiatrist. Um, we regard him as like one of the fathers of psychotherapy, but I really think he was more of a mystic. And he was so in to like the call of the soul or the self and very, very explicit that whatever is being made manifest in your mental health symptoms is probably a summons from your soul asking you to look at something it's not arbitrary and we live in a really interesting time where we've decided that not only is it not arbitrary but those symptoms are like the problem and so our entire model is based around getting rid of those symptoms um and so for most people in our time and place um that's done a lot through medication that's done through just other forms of numbing and there's not a lot of appreciation for, well, like what, what is your soul asking you to do? Like you feel depressed and we want to just act like, okay, let's give you medication to make that go away. That's not very helpful. Um, and you're going to keep feeling that. You'll just be numb to it. So I think like the more I'm in this, the more I shift my perspective and try and shift my client's perspective to just say like, let's treat this as a spiritual process. It's going to be way better for you and for me if we accept that like whatever's coming up is number one, meaningful. And number two, after this comes up and after you make sense of this and like derive some purpose and meaning, it's going to happen again. Hmm. And it's going to happen again and again and again. And every single time it happens, you have an opportunity to deepen your relationship with yourself and to, um, to treat it as a spiritual emergence. And if you do that, I think your life will get a lot better. (laughs) It has for me and it has for my clients, you Mm -hmm. know, through that kind of approach and that process.
0: Yeah. Agreed.
1: Well, yeah. And I'm just thinking, I think I actually, I probably underestimate how much uh, my own spirituality influences my work with clients, Um, but yeah, one thing I'm thinking of is I'm very, I try to be very client-centered, which is like Rogerian, Rogerian, however you want to say that, Um, and one of the principles of like, of person-centered therapy is unconditional positive regard, which I just think of as Christ-like behavior or emulating Christ in that way, which is whatever, whatever problem, whatever issue symptom that someone brings into the room in therapy, I, I hold them in positive regard. So without contempt, without judgment, without, you know, whatever it might be. And so, yeah, and that's kind of, if I had to pare it down to like the simplest way, I think spirituality influences my work with, um, clients, then that would be it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can speak as, uh, the wife of a therapist and also <laughs> a person who goes to therapy. <laughs> um, for in therapy, I get to know myself better. And I believe that getting to know myself better is... Coming closer to God, um, yeah. I think self knowledge is a really powerful spiritual tool.
0: Yeah, thanks. Okay, I'm going to take a more practical. Um, Christian brought in Jung and kind of that um, more mystical um, area of of spirituality and connecting with a higher power. If you listen to this podcast, you know, I believe in God and I also believe there are higher powers and people can use whatever language or whatever resonates with them. I think there's a practical application of skills learned in mental health therapy that help improve the self that then improve relationships, which I believe is learning Christ-like attributes. And so the practical application for me, I'll just give you an example that comes up. So John and Julie Gottman are couples therapists. The Gottman method, they have what they call the four horsemen. Defensiveness, stonewalling, contempt. What's the other one? I can always remember three and I can... (laughs) (laughs) And I can never remember four. And I can never remember the same three every time. So that's the thing. Stonewalling, defensiveness, contempt. Ah, whatever. Okay, so the, the application of that to me is if you are defensive in your relationships then you have blocks you aren't communicating you have some ego invested in the experience of a disagreement or an argument or something you butt up against this happens in all kinds of relationships marriages partnerships parent-child relationships and I believe the act of understanding your defensiveness is part of working towards more godly, Christ-like behavior. Criticism is the other one. <laughs> if you are critical to the people in your life, there is a reason for that. And I think that goes back to what you said, Christian, as there is something going on in you. There is some higher call to understand a a difficulty that you're having or an issue because people who come to couples therapy are generally depressed and anxious, right? In addition to having marital problems, they're also suffering from other maladies associated with the inability to be in a relationship that doesn't have all these things at the forefront. And I believe that of cognitive behavioral therapy. I believe that of dialectical behavior therapy. I believe that the skills in some of these more basic mental health principles are skills that Christ would say, yeah, do that so that you can stop doing this. And so that is how I have seen mental health and the principles in mental health lead me into a more robust understanding of how not to suck as a wife or a mother or a sister or an aunt. Or husband, brother, well, son. Yes. But I can only be <laughs> what I am. Yeah. But yeah, and I and I think as it relates to religion, I don't think religions well, it has not been my experience that religions teach this. Religions have a focus, uh, very often lists and things that you are to do and check off in order to show some type of devotion to your religion. And then we're left floundering in the application of actually we'll be more Christ-like. We'll fill your fill your lamp with oil. Even today, I'm like, what the hell is oil? Mm-hmm. And what are these drops made up of? And people say, pay your tithing, go to synagogue, go to mass, serve your neighbor. These are all great things, but they still leave me as a human being lacking in increasing in my Christ-like behaviors in relationships. So that's the practical application that I see. I love that you guys are following the mystical path as well. And I know Christian, you're doing a lot of work with a lot of stuff that brings in a lot of spirituality and mysticism. So anybody want to riff on that particular thing?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're saying the same thing. Like you, you could be in and then let's just say you're a person who holds really poor boundaries. Um, you're, you know, Jung said that the greatest burden a child has to bear is the unlived life of their parent. So let's just say a simple example. Like you are just playing out the exact story that your parent gave you or that your caregivers gave you. And it's really unfulfilling. You, like in your deepest, most true part of you, you know that this is not what you're supposed to be doing. But because you can't hold boundaries, because you can't speak your truth, because you can't, um, you know, stand up to confrontation or whatever that looks like, you repress it and then you get sick, and maybe that's chronic illness or maybe that's depression, and so that is a summons to do something about that to liberate yourself from some larger programming or script that is running, and then all those practical skills come in and give you the opportunity to do that. But but fundamentally, like you have to do that or you cannot and you can repress it and you can you know essentially do what most people do in our culture and that's just numb out uh and that i mean we do that all the time like if you're listening to this podcast like go look at your screen time you know that's probably numb out time i know it is for me it is for a lot of my clients you know um so yeah. We're constantly coping with like what is not working um, instead of just kind of doing what you were saying and using it as an opportunity to level up, yeah, so to speak. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, and I, I want to speak to what Annie said too, because she said, as someone who goes to therapy, learning about yourself, you have to have a space or a place or an intention to learn about yourself to do any of this work. Because... We don't know that we're ailing. We may feel disease, right? We may feel, and a lot of us don't have symptoms that rise to the level of anxiety or depression or any other kind of mental health malady that we could diagnose. And I'm not getting into diagnoses because again, if you take Rogerian's Um, you know, approach. There is no malady. There is just another person who is in pain or suffering. But if we don't have a symptomology that is screaming at us, then very, very few of us do any kind of self work at all. I'm guilty of that. I will acknowledge that. And yeah. Yeah. Okay, (laughs) the rest of the people in the room are doing a much better job than I am at doing their own work. Um, Okay, so can I, uh, Christian, you got a book, you want to, okay, I just, I'm just going to ask another question. If you want to speak to this question, go ahead. If not, we'll talk about what you want to talk about. How does, I was trying to ask non-leading questions, so how does religion or mental health or how do either of these not foster a spiritual practice or an awakening? And we probably already did that. Did we, do you think that does religion foster a spiritual awakening? Does mental health foster a spiritual awakening? Would you choose one over the other given what your experience in both has been? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, yeah, as I think about it, what did growing up in our religion give me? And I think one that I also think therapy gives me is, um, I guess intention. Yeah. I mean, like a life that I look at and I take inventory of and something to strive for, I guess I would say in... A religious setting maybe those things to strive for were given to me and not necessarily defined or made by my own volition and then in you know therapy is just you know what do i want to work on what areas am i struggling in or need to grow in but yeah i would say one way you know if there's a venn diagram one thing at least for me that i think religion and mental health both do is require you to examine your life and strive for something. Yeah, thanks. I,
2: so. I could speak from a slightly more, um, I guess, jaded perspective of uh, leaving the Mormon church. And I, think for me, have found like such deeper spiritual practice outside of the church. Um, and for me, that is because it uh, being within that organized religion felt extremely prescriptive. This is how you should be. This is how you should think. This is what you should believe. And if you don't, then you're wrong because we're right. Versus coming to know myself and coming to my own spiritual epiphanies has guided me to kind of answer some of those questions that you were asking like what is that oil like how do i show up in the world like what's my purpose and so i have found more Mm self-fulfillment outside of organized religion Mm -hmm. and more and with therapy yeah Yeah. (laughs) and more
0: spiritual meaning Yeah. yeah no i i appreciate that and i think it's interesting because i i don't really remember growing up having much thought about what maybe the oil in the lamp was. I'm just using that metaphor right now. I mean, I certainly wasn't thinking that at 14 or 16 or 18. But as an adult, I have spent a lot of years sitting in church meetings saying to myself and sometimes out loud, what is that? What does that mean? Because I know enough to know that the prescription has not strengthened my relationship with Mm -hmm. a God. And that's on me. I'm not saying other people haven't had different experiences, but I have always been the one who raises my hand and says, and, and I think people have appreciated it. I'm sure people have been annoyed by it. Um, I've had people come back and say something, but I love how you, Annie, said you have found that outside and being more able to freely seek instead of just holding to the um, standard of whatever that looks like. Mm
3: -hmm. Can you reiterate the question one more time?
0: Yeah, so the question is, is basically how does religion foster a spiritual practice or an awakening awakening and how does mental help foster a spiritual practice or an awakening and if your experience is that religion didn't as Annie, you know that was not her experience feel free to share
3: well yeah i'll just speak from my story i mean i think the the best thing that religion did for me was kind of install a openness to the numinous, like kind of install an openness to magic basically. And I, and I don't say that in like a demeaning or degrading way. I actually think that um, magic is real in some regard. And these things that we hear about in religion uh, are really helpful. And so that would be my number one takeaway is just like an openness to something way bigger than me. Uh, and I think that's a really helpful belief system. And I think that I mean that's well studied um, in literature. Mm. People who have religious beliefs and guidelines tend t- to be happier. And I think that's because they essentially like have a, a place to offload their their burden. Um, but I will also say that like in aggregate, religion was super damaging. To me and my ability to like grow into a whole person um and i could talk for freaking 45 minutes about this so i'll try and keep it as concise as possible possible but some of the things that i think it installed in me are a um pretty intense rigidity um an idea of perfection which inherently will lead you to being mentally ill um A inability to ask questions that perhaps you're not quote unquote supposed to ask, um, which any normal person experiencing being a human will have thoughts that fall outside the realm of goodness. Um, And even more nefarious, like installing a belief system that if you have a question or a feeling that diverts from this behavior, then it's probably because you're under the influence of the devil or you are not perfect enough. You're not clean enough. And that is like, I cannot think of a more damaging belief system, especially for an adolescent. Um, And that's how it was for me. And then I guess the last thing that I would say, and, and maybe we talk more about this, but I think the most damaging thing that religion did for me that therapy has unlocked. And it's interesting. I mean, that's a whole other side. I don't think this has to reside in therapy, but it's funny that in our society and culture, it does, but religion, like fully cut me off from my body. It, it turned my body into a thing to be ashamed of a thing to be disgusted by a thing to avoid. And like literally just segmented me from what I would call like truth and intuition. Um, And I've spent my adulthood trying to turn that back on. Um, And that has come through therapy. And that's kind of what I was saying. I think it's funny that therapy is like the modality to bring people to that um, in our time and place. I don't think it has to be that way. But and I can say more than more about this, but I don't think spirituality can exist outside of the body. Um, And religion for me was such an intellectual exercise that required me to ignore my body in order to align with goodness. Um, yeah. And it, and it's, it wrecked me and still is, you know, that's like my work at this point in my life.
0: Yeah. Lens, you're nodding your head. What are you thinking? Um, well, just, yeah, I agree.
1: And I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, growing up in the same household and the same religion, same ward or whatever, and just having different experiences I'm I'm thinking about what maybe protective factors I had in my life that mitigated those problems because I definitely still feel them but I guess they don't feel huge but one thing that I think I got from you and dad was you know like take nothing as truth until you take it to your higher power like no matter who says it where it's said where it was written whatever Yeah, like until you have come to your own conclusion, then you can hold off on, you know, taking it as dogma, I guess. And then, you know, I I just think the timing of some of my experiences kind of helped me. And one, you know, which I can get into is, you know, I went through the temple, got, you know, did all the endowments and everything. And then I moved to Hawaii and worked in a rite of passage. Um, in a wilderness program facilitating rite of passage rite of passages for um, adolescents and I think if those two things had not been um, back to back then yeah then I you know would have just gone through the temple the LDS temple and been like well I did it and never you know probably just thought of it as like a kind of weird culminating experience and not really integrated any of what maybe goes on there into my own life. So, so yeah, just thinking about that.
0: Yeah. I want to take off on that. I think that's really interesting that you said integrated. So one, I, I want to acknowledge, I mean, you were really good not to, not that you're not that there's blame. I have recognized that, but I mean, I'm your mom. I raised you, I am in part responsible for some of these things that happened. Um, And I think integration is a good word because Christian, you, you do a lot of work with things that need integrating. And I'm wondering what it would be like if religions had, I mean, this is just pie in the sky, right? If religions had spaces and intentional experiences of integrating religious and spiritual experiences Mm
3: -hmm.
0: i mean now that i'm thinking about that the fact that they don't is like the dumbest thing in the entire world (laughs) right and not only do we not integrate them we're not supposed to talk about them mm -hmm. well and i can only speak of my religious my i don't know a lot about other religions and i will admit that right now christian
3: Okay. And then Lindsay after me. But like, there's no room for that. That's the rigidity. Like, like, imagine I had a dream as an adolescent and Krishna came to me. And it's like Krishna is Krishna would be a symbolic representation of something. But I think the rigid, rigid structure is like, well, that's not the right God to be dreaming about. So Either we're just going to like steer it somewhere else and be like, you know, that's weird. That's a weird dream. That's funny, you know? Or we're just not going to acknowledge it for like that power. So I think if you had an integrative structure inside a religion, you would need to let go of a lot of rigidity mm-hmm. and openness and acknowledge that the unconscious is going to speak to you in symbols. And it might not be Judeo Christian symbols, and that's okay. Um, but. I don't think we have structures to hold that.
1: Um, to follow Christian's thought. I, I think that's what my experience in Hawaii gave me was permission to draw on many more symbols than the ones I was given in a religious setting. And then to also go back and revisit, you know, experiences in the temple or yeah, or earlier adolescent experiences and make meaning of them. It was just permission was opened. And, you know, kind of jumping to another thought, you know, like I think about the idea of, you know, if you grew up going to an LDS church, you probably had, you know, bishops interviews or where you had to, something went wrong or you sinned or whatever, and you had to go confess to a bishop. And I think about that now, and like in a therapy setting, like there is no change without a relationship. And I think, you know, I think the principle of like confession for lack of a better word or telling your story is like so important, but then the therapeutic part that comes in is that story should be held with like as something sacred and personal and whatever. But instead, you know, I don't think this is an uncommon experience, but what you were given was like. You know stop taking the sacrament or it was just judgment from somebody you don't have a relation with a relationship with typically
0: yeah
1: and so yeah so what it seems like you know now working in mental health looking back at you know religious practices that i was raised with it was like they missed the mark you know like maybe the behaviors were there but this yeah the mm-hmm. spirit of it was gone yeah and therapy for me has brought back the spirit of those practices outside of a religious setting.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Anybody taken off on that? Okay. Uh, so I just asked another series of questions when we paused and I don't remember what any of them were. So Christian, what, you brought a couple books. You have some thoughts that mm-hmm. would help us?
3: Yeah, I, I guess I, I guess some other thoughts that are, you had asked like religion doesn't necessarily teach skills
0: mm. mm-hmm. to
3: improve relationships. Yeah. Um, it just kind of gives you kind of broad guidance on what's accepted of you, which I, I relate to, but I think if we're talking about skills that you, you it starts with an underlying premise like you have to accept that there are things that you don't know and can't possibly know and no amount of religious structure or rigidity will give you that. Like you can feel safe within that container, but I think that there's more outside of that. And then you also have to step out of the paradigm of goodness and that's like the i think that that is a life-changing revelation for people when you're conditioned to believe in goodness and rightness and that that could have nothing to do with religious structure you know that could be like i follow the rules in the classroom and my teacher puts a gold star under my name at the end of every day and that makes me feel good because i was being good and i'm only being acknowledged for a specific subset of behaviors that force me to cut off my wholeness. So just,
0: yeah, just please remember that I did a series of podcasts on these. So if you are not understanding what he's saying, go back and revisit that series of good and right that I did, because that is exactly right, Christian. And thanks for bringing that up. Now, keep going. Yeah, that's a plug for previous podcasts. (laughs)
3: Um, I mean, I'll just read part of this quote from James Hollis, who is a guy that I've just been reading, like everything that he's written, because it's amazing. But he writes that Jung, talking about Carl Jung, he's he's a Jungian analyst, so he refers to Jung's work a lot. But he said, Jung frequently reminded us that our task in life is not goodness, but wholeness. Now, I don't know about you, but I never heard anything like that when I was a child, and I wish I had. Like most children, whenever I had what I would consider a shadow thought, fantasy, or hope, I immediately felt awful about it because of the weight of the collective expectation to always be good. When that happened, I believed goodness alone was the task. It was what I had to to do. So, you you know, like when we're talking about skills, I get it. There's a lot of skills to move into communication, to better understanding where a person is coming from, to tolerating other people's feelings, and you don't get defensive, and yada, 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 all that stuff. But it also is a complete paradigm shift yeah. that I think right. a lot of people struggle with. And I, and they're not mutually exclusive. I don't mean to suggest that you can't hold these thoughts and still be religious, but it will push you against the edges of this defined container. Uh, and, and that's challenging, you mm-hmm. know? So.
0: That's interesting. Cause now that you say that, I think one of the reasons that I see it the way I see it now is because I, have experienced a paradigm shift still in progress not completely but i'm wondering if i'm if my eyes have been opened so to speak to these different concepts being godly and christ-like concepts because i have experienced that paradigm shift of no longer attaching to goodness or rightness and a work in progress. Always. And I would like to suggest that this is nothing short of a necessity. This is not, this is not something you can do if you want. I believe this is something you have to do. And I'm that's. I'll just leave that part here. I believe this is something you have to do. The paradigm shift? The paradigm shift. You have to get out of that.
2: I would also say that there is a... Once you're there, you kind of see the very obvious difference between good and right as what is told to you by, you know, your parents, your religion your teachers. And then when you get to know yourself better, like we've been talking about through therapy and your own practices, you can then come into touch with your values and what your belief system is. And it's actually so much easier to live kind of this life of alignment through your own values rather than always thinking that you're doing something wrong, even though it feels right. Um, and and even then, when you make a mistake, it's easier to shift back to your own alignment rather than go to the bishop, find someone mm-hmm. external to to make things better for you, you kind of take your own power back.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not doing this, and I would love to do another podcast because I know a lot of people would need some sort of Or it would help them make some shifts if they could say, okay, well, where, what does this look like scripturally, right? So when you just said that about your own values and figuring your own stuff back out and not having to go to your bishop, I mean, in the case of the LDS culture, the scripture that came to mind was Alma the Younger did not report to anybody. He just had an experience where God came and said, you got to stop doing this saw everything before his eyes you know the whole thing and that was not a that was not a confession in in the traditional way that we do it so my point is is i do believe there are representations of all of these things from the new testament to the old testament to the book of mormon if that's your jam to the quran to the you know other scriptural books and works have these concepts in them they are already in them and we just don't see them because we don't know what we don't know and until we break off some of these get out of some of these paradigms that are not serving us we will not see them i have had a conversation i've had a conversation with i'll say dad because my kids are sitting in here where there's a, there's a reference in scripture to the mysteries of god And I mean, I've grown up believing that the mysteries of God mean something. But as I have gone through this kind of work, I believe the mysteries of God are something and a whole lot more. And it falls under the, we don't know what we don't know. And I think it is entirely possible that mental health concepts, mental health structures, mental health mysticism, mental health skills are Mysteries in plain sight. And I think the barrier to pursuing that and seeking after those things in direct relationship to becoming more Christ like, I think that's, those barriers are frustrating to me.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking that. I mean, I can see how someone listening to this who's firmly implanted in religion can think, can feel like it's a very scary thought to say, well, I'm supposed to listen to myself or I'm supposed to let my child go on a path that they're telling me is right for them. Um, and I get that, you know, I totally get that. And like you just said, I mean, I I think it's pretty apparent, an example from scriptural text that, that prophets are often renegades. You know, they're the people that are going against everything that's you're supposed to be doing and everyone thinks they're crazy or they're trying to kill them or they're trying to break them down and so it's interesting that we don't you know acknowledge that now but if we're treating like going back to what i was saying in the beginning if we're treating mental health symptoms as a summons of the soul and that's asking you to go down a path that's really uncomfortable and not what you would choose if you were just going to follow the program and conditioning laid out to you very often that's going to be a challenging, uh, uncomfortable experience. Um, and again, I mean, I don't, I don't want to just keep berating this point, but I don't think at least the way that I was raised in the religious structure I was raised, there was not enough flexibility for that. Uh, if, if, if someone was deviating from the path, then it was like, Oh no, we've got to go save them and get them right back here doing exactly what we're doing. Um, and again, I, I can't think of anything more stifling to a person's development and soul than that, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, and this is just slightly tangential, but it's a thought that keeps coming back to me. I mean, that if you take a lot of spiritual traditions, religious traditions, and we'll just use Mormonism and the LDS right now. Joseph Smith was a 14-year-old boy who went out and prayed in a garden and had a spiritual experience where Christ and the Father came to him. And in 2023, we have what?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say if that happened, we would regard that person as psychotic and yeah, and tell everyone to get away from them. Yes, <laughs> you know
0: exactly. So, so we have made it smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, less mystical, less magical, more prescripted, more rigid, and less fulfilling
3: which I guess this is a good time to say that like that. That's what I think is so funny about therapy today, because I think we know that and we know that deeply, like in the collective unconscious. And for whatever reason, therapy has like fallen into this pseudo spiritual realm where like people go in there knowing that they need greater access with something inside of them. Uh, but they probably can't articulate that. And then through a therapeutic process, depending on who your therapist is and, and how they view, which I will put a caveat here. Therapy is like inherently a biased process because (laughs) whoever the therapist is that you're seeing is going to have a set of things. And I don't care how many, you know, trainings you go to, yada, 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 like that is what's going to happen. But anyway, so you get into a therapeutic experience and like, it's kind of like pseudo like clergy or something mm-hmm. where you're like like Lindsay said earlier like confession you know maybe that's a word for it and they're being seen by an empathic love an empathic other feeling unconditional love and through that getting closer to who they are mm-hmm. which as we kind of said at the beginning of this like that would be really cool if that were happening in the religious setting um, and i don't mean to suggest that that's never happening i i do have positive experiences mm-hmm. as well that i could talk about but um, I think in in aggregate uh, and just based on what I see in myself and my clients like some of the things that I'm speaking to are more than norm yeah um, then yeah
0: oh yeah ordinary yeah, that's my experience with a lot of my clients as well yeah okay, yeah. any comments on anything that's been said?
1: Well, yeah, I'm just thinking about how you know and again, I'm just using Mormonism because that's the the context I come from but you know the whole premise of God's plan is um agency the ability to choose and there's this quote that I'm gonna botch but it's like I think it's a Marcus Aurelius quote where it's like you're not peaceful unless you can actually unless you can choose violence or unless you're capable of violence um and I think about that with like um I'll just call it owning your shadow you know like being if you only have access to what is prescribed as good, then it's not good. It's just incomplete. But if you know that, you know, I'm capable of, yeah, I'm capable of evil, and and so I still choose good, then that's an actual choice. That's actual agency as opposed to, you know, whatever we're given, Mm -hmm. which is a checklist and a, a lot of shame when you, maybe in action or in thought or in whatever deviate from what is prescribed as good yeah so yeah, i was just thinking about thinking about that mm-hmm. any anything for
0: you
2: i'm just thinking more about wholeness the being a whole person doesn't mean that you are both equally good as you are evil it's the it's the middle path it's the like being in alignment with yourself it's knowing that you have a choice and you're continuing to live out of um, integrity with your own values
0: yeah and i love that you said the middle path because when we get back to dbt we will be talking about the middle path Mm -hmm. yeah um this concept of wholeness again is i'm not going down this tangent but there's a there's a lot of talk in therapy about um Parts, or you're splintered off, or you're closed off from this part of you, or you are closed off from your body. And in the scriptures, the be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven. Either even as your Father in heaven is perfect is not perfect; it is whole. That is the translation of the word perfect. If wholeness is the word in scripture and wholeness is a therapeutic process. You know, being in therapy, doing your own work, finding a way to bring back together all of your parts and bring back together your relationship to your body and reconnecting with all of that, that is wholeness. That is achieved through, as often as not a therapeutic process, and certainly can be achieved by doing your own work if that is what you're looking for. And you have to believe that there is something godly about that. There's something godly about self-awareness. There's something godly about recognizing that you are good and bad, getting away from the good, but you, you have both inside of you. And it is okay for your shadow parts to be there. We do have an ego. And the ego gets in the way of wholeness because it brings up our defenses. It increases our anxiety. We are not in our wise minds. We don't know how to communicate. We, we have to be good and we have to be right. So we have to push back and we have to do all of these things that keep us fractured and be therefore perfect, be therefore whole even as your father in heaven is whole. That's a journey. If we believe in, if in the LDS tradition, if you believe in a heavenly father and a heavenly mother who attained unto their Godhood, they worked their asses off people. This isn't, I mean, it's, it's work and it's work we have to do here and it's work we have to just believe is the path back to God. Okay, hey, Christian, you got your book again. I love um, this guy too, so you're good. I just
3: he, James Hollis in this book called "Living an Examined Life" um, has five uh, points that he said are found in a mature spirituality, and I really like it. So I'll just I'll just say him briefly because it's he's written kind of a lot about it. But he says first um, resonance. So if something truly resonates within us, it is right for us at least for now. We do not choose that the soul makes that decision for us that's that's what i was talking about earlier it can be a really scary thought to think like wait does this person that i love who's deviating from my paradigm do they really know what is good for them you know and we have to trust that that person can allow and tune into that resonance he says second a true spirituality opens up to the numinous so basically that's a word for something approaching us something larger than us is soliciting our engagement it's not willed by the ego um third a mature spirituality opens us up to mystery I must live with more uncertainty than is comfortable fourth mature spirituality asks me to grow up growing up at least means that we accept full responsibility for our lives and fifth belief and practices are to be measured whether they open us up to mystery deepen our engagement with the unfolding of our journey and require us to grow up live without uncertainty yet conduct daily life with values that we do our best to practice. Uh, and I just love that. I mean, I think it's just a clear, concise way of like gauging any type of practice. You know, is it allowing me to bounce around within this framework or is it is it prescriptive? Um, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Any last thoughts? Okay. I think... I personally, I could keep going with this and I get tired and then I'm just done. Mm -hmm. And I have really awesome kids and they picked really awesome partners. And I love all of the wonderful conversations that we get to have. And I love being part of everybody's journey. And you're smart and you're thoughtful and you make a whole lot of sense. And so thanks for doing this with me. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to pause now and make Christian find us a Hollis quote. And that's what I will end with. Cool. Okay. This is Christian reading James Hollis.
3: Ordinary ideas are easily contradicted by other ideas, but, pro- but for profoundly truthful ideas, their opposites are also true. Therefore, only paradox can begin to approach the magnitude of the universe in which we float
0: and have a great week. Thank you.